Welcome to Desire to Destiny, a podcast where we explore the mystery behind our deepest desires and how they can make us happier human beings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Larson, but please just call me doctor. I'm thinking of a buzzword today. Do you know what it is? No, it's not social distancing. That's two words anyway. No, it's not flattening the curve. That's three words getting further off here. And no, it is not hydroxychloroquine. Give up? The word I'm thinking of is neuroplasticity. This is a term that has been gaining in popularity in recent years, especially after discoveries in the last half of the 20th century about the brain's ability to be altered even to and through adulthood. Uh, Previous to these discoveries, it was largely thought that the brain developed and matured into the mid-20s and then essentially just sat stagnant or deteriorating from there till the end of our lives. Not a very hopeful vision. But the fact is actually much happier, much more positive than this uh, idea. Uh, The fact is that our brain is changing all the time, responding to every thought and feeling, every moment of the day, so much so that it's been determined we can't even have the exact same feeling twice in a lifetime. Uh, And sometimes these changes can result in rapid impact and transformation, people coming free from addiction and other things of that sort. Uh, As it turns out, this neuroplasticity, this malleability of the brain, impacts every aspect of our lives, as you would imagine, our behaviors, our memories, our ever-developing sense of identity. And all of this change impacts our physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. It's that last part, the the spiritual well-being, that has my interest today. In a book entitled How God Changes Your Brain, two authors that do not come from a distinct faith background. One of them uh, prefers to look at the world in a naturalistic uh, point of view, while the other is open to the presence of God, but not committed. But these two authors uh, identify a major discovery from the work in neuroscience revolving around religion and spirituality. In their research on the impact of religion and religious practices from a wide range of backgrounds, they actually identify faith as a vital force in the life of every human being. Speaking on this, they note, having faith is what drives us to survive and transcend. It makes life worth living, and it gives meaning to our life. Faith is embedded, and here's where the science comes in, faith is embedded in our neurons and in our genes, and it is one of the most important principles to honor in our lives. According to the author's This is true whether someone puts their faith explicitly in God or in science or relationships or work. It's this hope, this optimism, which faith embodies that protects us actually from slipping into despair or depression, at least when accessed at its best. But the point is, this inescapable aspect of our being, this faith that that is at the core of each one of us, means that we all believe in something. And generally, the research shows that strong beliefs are a good thing. Uh, Numerous studies have shown, as the authors uh, say, and I quote, as religious convictions increase, anxiety and depression tend to decrease. And this was even shown to have impact on medical students in Iran who had strong beliefs and whose anxiety was actually lower than those uh, around them. However, there is one caveat to this. When these strong convictions are used to justify angry feelings towards others, it can actually disturb the normal neural functioning of many parts of the brain. Uh, 
In addition, it has been demonstrated, and once again I quote, that religious fear and guilt can evoke feelings of depression and thoughts of suicide, particularly for people who believe they have committed an unforgivable sin. Now, I've encountered this in, on my own work uh, with individuals again and again, where they, they ask questions like, why is God angry with me? Why is God allowing this happen to me? With they have some traumatic life event. You know, why has God allowed this to take place? It's a personal application of the much broader question, why do bad things good happen to good people? Or if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Or sometimes I've even heard people say it this bluntly, why does God hate me? Now, among the strong beliefs people might have, and especially with how many people espouse the vision of God as loving and compassionate, etc., etc., I'm wondering, where might that anger, fear, and irrational guilt come from? Well, maybe it has something to do with the stories we're telling and believing about God. Take, for example, uh, The Truman Show. In 1998, uh, this movie came out starring Jim Carrey, and it imagined a world where one man's every waking moment was broadcast live to the viewing public. Now, this was before the days of reality TV uh, with the likes of the Kardashians or the Survivor Series or The Bachelor, and it was before any one of us could broadcast our every waking moment to the world through uh, YouTube and through Facebook Live and Instagram. So at the time, it was a novel concept, perhaps a somewhat ludicrous idea that you could actually watch somebody every moment of their being. In the movie, this is carried out by an ambitious movie executive who decides to adopt a child from an unwanted pregnancy and then to put a camera on him from his crib to kindergarten to first kiss to every major moment in his life. Um, And while this, uh, you know, kind of preposterous piece of social fiction turned out to be somewhat prophetic that we now have cameras following us almost all the time, To me, the lasting importance comes not just from this uh, predictive look into the future that we now experience, but from the spiritual overtones in Truman's story. Those are the ones that always grab me anytime I watch the movie. You see, once Truman realizes he is being followed, uh, he starts suspecting that there's some nefarious scheme going on, that the, the world is out to get him, to follow him to, for what reason, he's not really sure. And he starts going a bit crazy. Uh, He starts scaring his friends around him. He scares his wife so much that she leaves the house. He's left all alone. um, And in desperation, he decides he has to figure out what the truth is. In his pursuit of this, he decides that the only way to do so is to get on his sailboat, to sail across the water, and just get far away from this town that he lived in. And this was no small feat for him because as a child, he had watched his father go off into the water and presumably die in the ocean. Um, Although it was just a, a ruse at the time, Truman didn't know this. So for a long time, very afraid of the water. As he goes out in the water, he survives a horrific storm at sea and eventually he reaches the end of the world or the end of the TV studio that he'd been living into. And after he crashes into the wall, he gets out and he begins to walk along the edge of the world and he finds a hidden staircase leading to an exit door. And after he opens the door and he stands there, um, to me, one of the most 
the, the most pivotal moment, the climactic moment of the movie comes when Kristoff, the show's producer, begins to speak to Truman from the sky. And the dialogue goes like this. Truman, you can speak. I can hear you. Who are you? Truman wants to know. I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. And who am I? You're the star, Kristoff responds, responds proudly. Truman wonders uh, at that moment with a hint of sadness and anger in his face. Was nothing real? You were real, Kristoff reassures him as he begins to implore him not to leave and tries to persuade him and convince him with all the arguments he can muster uh, about how this is a better place for Truman to be than whatever's out there. Of course, this idea you were real, Truman, this authenticity uh, about his life is no reason to stay now. He, he knows the truth. He knows it's a fabricated world, and he knows it will never bring him what he desires. He was duped, and he was used for Kristoff's own agenda and purpose. He was a means of gain for his creator's greater good. You see, keeping Truman alive was important to Kristoff, only so long as it served this greater purpose. Even though he couches himself as a caretaker and watching over Truman, it's clear he only cared about the money that Truman could bring him. This is clearly illustrated earlier in the scene when Kristoff first spots Truman sailing away, and he tries to scare Truman into turning around. So he's the one that actually create the storm, creates the storm that capsizes Truman's boat and almost kills him. And the others on the show who were all around Kristoff at the time, in the, back in the, in, the, in the room where the editing's happening, in the, the control room, they say, you can't let him die in front of a live audience. And Kristoff replies defiantly, he was born in front of a live audience. In other words, truly is merely a puppet in his show, a means for entertainment to be used however Kristoff desires. And it's on this point, it's on this point I feel that uh, Truman... The Truman Show really speaks to an experience so many of us run up against. This movie reflects uh, the image that many wrestle with in their own spiritual journey, the image of a controlling, selfish, manipulative God that is likely to invoke the fear and the guilt and the anger that deteriorates our brain functioning and hampers our well-being. Of course, this angry God image is nothing new. It wasn't introduced by The Truman Show. In fact, it's been around for millennia. Uh, consider, for example, the ancient Mesopotamian creation myth from Atrahasis, a notable literary figure from the dawn of human history. Uh, in this origin story, the gods become overburdened by the responsibility of taking care of planet Earth. As one version begins... It says, when the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. And so this leads many of the gods to band together with weapons in hand and surround the house of the great god, Elil, and demand that he relieve them from their labors. And because Elil sees the wisdom in their ways or uh, doesn't want to put up a fight or just wants to go back to sleep, he decides to meet their demands. Uh, but to do so, he requires a sacrifice of one of the gods, Iluwale, uh, to make humankind. And after this sacrifice, they then go to Mammy, who is the midwife of the gods, and 
through the dead body of Illawale and the spittle of the other gods brings out humanity, creates humankind. And this is then what she offers to them. In celebrating her achievement, she declares, I have relieved you of your hard work. She's speaking to the gods here. I have imposed your load on man. You have bestowed noise on mankind. I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. Well, at least freedom for the other gods. Humans were obviously less fortunate, and the rest of their lives would be spent doing the grunt work that the gods just weren't that interested in. This is far from the only story that goes this way. Another one from the Babylonian uh, mythology is about their god Marduk, who arises as one of the most powerful gods there is and takes over control when there is a rebellion from Tiamata, the Babylonian goddess mother of all other gods. And after Marduk conquers her, he then creates earth out of her dead body, then gathers the remaining gods and determines, you know, who it was that had kind of started this whole war, who had instigated Tiamata to come against him. And once this is found, they kill him, use his blood. Same story again, humanity is born. Uh, Marduk's accomplishments are recorded with this note. He created mankind from his blood, imposed the toil of the gods on man, and released the gods from it, so that the gods shall live at leisure." And live at leisure, they do. Because to show their appreciation for what Marduk has done, the gods actually construct him a sanctuary in his honor. And at the christening of this sanctuary, they're invited to join him in this divine rest. And the call goes out to the assembly of gods everywhere. Sing for joy, dwell in happiness. And in response, all the gods gather around the banquet hall, beer mugs in hand, to celebrate their newfound freedom. I'm not making any of this up. It's all there. But again, this is a freedom not known by humanity. And just think about it. If this is the view of God that is responsible for your well-being in life, for your being in life, if this is the God that very potentially put whatever desires are within you, uh, what are you supposed to think about this God? How are you supposed to relate to a God like this? And how are you supposed to relate to yourself? Wouldn't fear and anger and guilt and anxiety be a natural response at that point? You know, in the last episode, we touched on the topic of the madness from the gods. That is, the deepest desires in each of us. And that label of madness comes from Plato's quote, We are fired into life with a madness that comes from the gods, and which would have us believe that we can have a great love, perpetuate our own seed, and contemplate the divine. These are beautiful sentiments, to be sure, this grandiose idea of us being able to pursue what we really love and what we really want in life. But if the gods from the previous two stories were the creators of our world, and therefore the bestowers of our desires, their self-seeking nature from the start would infer that it's a bit of a cruel intent even placing desire in us. Since our chief purpose is as pawns in their cosmic games, Our desires serve merely as some sort of a distraction or a cruel joke while we serve this time in bondage. However, Plato didn't seem to intend this conclusion. He actually looked at the madness as a good thing, called it a blessing that was heaven sent. And this alternative perspective may have owed somewhat to the more human-centric perspective of the Greeks. As one scholar of Greek mythology explains, 
In the earliest Greek poets, a new point of view dawned, never dreamed of in the world before them, but never to leave the world after them. With the coming forward of Greece, mankind became the center of the universe, the most important thing in it. This was a revolution in thought. Human beings had counted for little heretofore, but in Greece, man first realized what mankind was. And there's no doubt that the ancient Greeks made cultural contributions uh, that reverberate down to our day. But I would disagree with the idea that the Greek poets were uh, alone in a perspective that ennobled humanity. They weren't the only ancient perspective elevating humanity's status, especially as it relates to humanity and the divine intent. Allow me to present a third origin story. And perhaps you've heard these words before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if we stop right here, and if we consider what it would be like to be an ancient listener, there's probably a couple of things from this first line that would grab their attention, which may not strike us at first. Uh, first of all, the, the actual Hebrew word here is Elohim, which is the plural gods, not God. And while there's a lot of good information about why God is a proper translation given the verbs that are used and all that, I'm not going to go into the details of it. I'm just going to say simply that the ancient listener would have heard that plurality and thought, this is like the creation stories I've heard before. The, the gods are responsible for it. The gods are a part of it. In fact, that's where the second point comes up. They might have said, yeah, yeah, I, I know how the world began. I've heard the stories before. There's turmoil and there's bloodshed, there's death and sacrifice. Or in the case of Greek mythology, there's a bunch of false starts. Mankind through, goes through multiple iterations before we finally get to the right one or to at least the one that we have now. But the author of Genesis tells this story in a shocking way and essentially begins by saying, I bet you don't know how this one goes. And so we hear it again. In the beginning, gods. And throughout the poem that follows the account of creation unfolds, this god speaks and things happen. Light, water, land, celestial bodies, fish in the sea, birds in the sky, animals of all kind upon the ground, all responding to the sound of God's voice. Creation is put in order, and there is no bloodshed like the stories of Ataharsis. There's no dead bodies like the stories of Marduk. There's no repeated failed attempts like in Greek mythology. Without resistance, God simply creates. And then the climactic act of creation. The most relevant part to our conversation, perhaps here, humanity is finally brought onto the scene. In this scene, gods gather once again, and here the plurality of the gods is very important. It's not with weapons and hands or needs that must be met. It's not with deception or manipulation or trickery. Rather, the God comes together in divine community and proposes a stunning idea. Let us create humanity in our own image, according to our likeness, 
and let them rule. This is an extremely elevated status for humanity. They're not grunt workers. They're not muses for divinity's pleasure. They are something far greater. Now, there, there are similarities in this story and that of the other ancient stories, to be sure. Yes, God does create humankind, and there is work that is given to them to do in taking care of earth. But despite the similar themes between the other stories, despite the similarities, it's different in significant ways that would completely alter the way the original hearers would hear it. In this story, God is not overwhelmed by the work of taking care of earth. It's not like he needs a break. It's not like he needs a rest. Rather, this God tames the hostile planet in seven short days. Whatever was of chaos, he puts in order. What was ever was out of place, he, he creates a function. He sends it in a positive direction. He is in complete control here. And, and there's no challenge. There's, there's, there's no other uh, resistance to this. Additionally, this God is not imposing upon humanity, but inviting humanity to rule and reign. It's not, here's all the work that I didn't want to do. Rather, it's, let me invite you into something that you will truly enjoy. Let me invite you into something that you will treasure. Let me let you see what it would be like to experience the joy I have experienced in creation. See, this God is not concerned with humanity serving God's needs, but rather this God is generous and concerned about the happiness of humanity, blessing them and gifting them with everything they could desire. Uh, There's the gift of the garden. There's the gift of the divine image. There's the gift of companionship that comes in the the second iteration of the story uh, even more poignantly, but here from the opening description, created in our image, male and female, God created them. This companionship is a part of the gift that God gave. And there's that gift of calling, calling not just to be inhabitants, not just to be mere uh, servants or peons or pawns, but to be as boldly and as provocatively as it may sound, co-creators with God. That's right. Humanity was invited to participate in a very real way in the actual creation of the planet. It is this idea of co-creation that the Midrash has in mind when it makes the bold suggestion of humanity's responsibility. In the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, the question is asked, who formed you, O Jacob? Who created you, O Israel? And it would seem that the obvious response is God did, um, which is the correct response. Nothing wrong with that from the Torah or anything that would have come in the Hebrew scriptures. But the Midrash daringly reimagines this verse in this way, as if God is now engaging with creation in a poetic uh, re-understanding of humanity's calling. The Midrash says, God said to his world, my world, my world, I shall tell you who created you, who formed you. Great Jacob created you, Israel formed you, as it is said, who created you? Jacob. Who formed you? Israel. And what was once a question becomes a definitive and provocative statement, as if God is saying, you are so entwined in the work of creation that I am doing that I actually credit you with a part of it. I actually consider you co-creators with me. And one scholar, not a musician this time, but an actual scholar, 
comments on this interpretation. God speaks lovingly to his world, assigns it another creator. It is apparently human consciousness in all its contingency that creates the world. In this sense, God becomes the creator of the world only when the question of meaning has been decided by man. This is a very different view from the worn-out gods relaxing with their favorite IPA because human beings have unburdened them. Yes, humanity has a responsibility in this co-creation, but it is a divine prerogative, and humanity has been ennobled by this task of creating uh, family groups and communities and social action and having an opportunity to form and shape earth in such a way that reflects that image of God over and over and over again. This is a high and noble calling. You, You see, this account is so different because God doesn't want something from us as much as he wants something for us. God creates with desire and invites us to invest that desire as we answer the call to rule the earth. God wants us to experience the joy of co-creation. And that's in part why some of the initial commands that God gives right there in that first chapter of Genesis are, first of all, you know, be fruitful and multiply, which is to uh, enjoy intimate relationships and the fruit of your labors. Uh, And in addition to that, that God says, come and eat freely of all the food that I have given them. That's right. God invites humanity initially to good sex and great food. So don't tell me he didn't create us with desires that he intended to be fulfilled. Think about it. If you think that your sole purpose is to serve some other being's agenda, how much do your desires really matter? If all you're doing is Uh, meeting out that purpose of alleviating their toil and their burden and making life easier for them. I mean, your desires matter only in so much as they help you survive that. And if they're vindictive or petty gods that might punish or push you away or push you aside, what you want doesn't really matter. And if that's the God you believe in, then that's the way you would approach those desires. But if on the other hand, If you're made in the divine image and invited to take power and authority and use it to continue the act of creation, your desire matters a great deal. Because these are the basis for the reality that will be created on earth. So is desire a good thing? Well, depends what you believe about it. The ancient Hebrews asserted it was a God-given gift Plato said it was a blessing that was heaven sent, and centuries later, Jesus would make grand promises regarding our desires, although that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But there's a clear line of thought in a lot of this ancient wisdom. Desire is an inheritance from the God. And while there are mythologies today, just like there have been for millennia, that question the value of this gift, There are plenty that support the notion that it is a divine blessing and that our desires are a necessity for human happiness. So the question is, which stories do you believe? And which God do you believe in? Some stories would lead you to conclude that you're bound to a life of toil and misery and your deepest desires are little more than a twisted cosmic joke and any notion of God must contain that fear and anger and anxiety. 
but there are others that invite you to something more. Stories full of optimism and hope and affirmation of your being, they call you forward to something greater. They honor your life and place your well-being in high regard. They tell you in so many words that the universe has got your back and that your desires are a gift, a blessing, a guide to a life of meaning and purpose. I don't know about you, but that's the story I'm believing in. Until next time, this is Dr. Mike saying peace and love, everyone, and please wash your hands.